Chapter 13 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 1 by Alexandre Dumas. Translated by George Burnham Ives. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Borgias, Chapter 13. The time had now come for the Duke of Valentinois to continue the pursuit of his conquests. So, since on the first of May in the preceding year the Pope had pronounced sentence of forfeiture on full consistory against Julius Caesar of Varano, as punishment for the murder of his brother Rudolph and for the harboring of the Pope's enemies, and he had accordingly been mulcted of his fief of Camarino, which was to be handed over to the apostolic chamber. Caesar left Rome to put the sentence into execution. Consequently, when he arrived on the frontiers of Perugia, which belonged to his lieutenant Gian Paolo Baglioni, he sent Oliverata de Fermo and Orsini of Ravina to lay waste to the march of Camarino, at the same time petitioning Guido de Baldo di Montefeltro, Duke of Urbino, to lend his soldiers and artillery to help him in this enterprise. This, the unlucky Duke of Urbino, who enjoyed the best possible relations with the Pope, and who had no reason for distrusting Caesar, did not dare refuse. But, on the very same day that the Duke of Urbino's troops started for Camarino, Caesar's troops entered the Duchy of Urbino, and took possession of Cagli, one of the four towns of the little state. The Duke of Urbino knew what awaited him if he tried to resist, and fled incontinently disguised as a peasant. Thus, in less than eight days, Caesar was master of his whole duchy, except the fortresses of Maolo and San Leone. The Duke of Valentinois forthwith returned to Camarino, where the inhabitants still held out, encouraged by the presence of Julius Caesar de Verano, their lord, and his two sons, Venancio and Hannibal. The eldest son, Gian Maria, had been sent by his father to Venice. The presence of Caesar was the occasion of parleying between the besiegers and besieged. A capitulation was arranged whereby Verano engaged to give up the town, on condition that he and his sons were allowed to retire safe and sound, taking with them their furniture, treasure, and carriages. But this was by no means Caesar's intention. So, profiting by the relaxation and vigilance that had naturally come about in the garrison when the news of the capitulation had been announced, he surprised the town in the night preceding the surrender, and seized Caesar de Verano and his two sons, who were strangled a short time after the father at La Pergola, and the sons at Pesaro, by Don Michele Correglio, who, though he had left the position of Spiro for that of a captain, every now and then returned to his first business. Meanwhile, Vitalazzo Vitelli, who had assumed the title of General of the Church, and had under him eight hundred men-at-arms and three thousand infantry, was following the secret instructions that he had received from Caesar by word of mouth, and was carrying forward that system of invasion which was to encircle Florence in a network of iron, and in the end make her defense an impossibility. A worthy pupil of his master, in whose school he had learned to use in turn the cunning of a fox and the strength of a lion, he had established an understanding between himself and certain young gentlemen of Arezzo to get that town delivered into his hands. But the plot had been discovered by Guglielma de Pazzi, commissary of the Florentine Republic, and he had arrested two of the conspirators, whereupon the others, who were much more numerous than was supposed, had instantly dispersed about the town, summoning the citizens to arms. All the Republican faction who saw in any sort of revolution the means of subjugating Florence joined their party, set the captives at liberty, and seized Guglielmo. Then, proclaiming the establishment of the ancient constitution, they besieged the citadel, whither Cosimo de Pazzi, bishop of Arezzo, the son of Guglielmo, had fled for refuge. He, finding himself invested on every side, sent a messenger in hot haste to Florence to ask for help. Unfortunately for the cardinal, Vitalazzo's troops were nearer to the besiegers than were the soldiers of the Most Serene Republic to the besieged, and instead of help, the whole army of the enemy came down upon him. 
This army was under the command of Delazzo, of Gianpaolo Baglioni, and of Fabio Orsini, and with them were the two Medici, ever ready to go wherever there was a league against Florence, and ever ready at the command of Borgia, on any conditions whatever, to re-enter the town whence they had been banished. The next day more help in the form of money and artillery arrived, sent by Pandolfo Petrucci, and on the 18th of June the citadel of Arezzo, which had received no news from Florence, was obliged to surrender. Vitalazzo left the men of Arezzo to look after their town themselves, leaving also Fabio Orsini to garrison the citadel with a thousand men. Then, profiting by the terror that had been spread throughout all this part of Italy by the successive captures of the duchies of Burbino, of Camerino, and of Arezzo, he marched upon Monte San Severino, Castiglione, Aretino, Cortone, and the other towns of the valley of Chiana, which submitted one after the other almost without a struggle. When he was only ten or twelve leagues from Florence and dared not on his own account attempt anything against her, he made known the state of affairs of the Duke of Valentinois. He, fancying the hour had came at last for striking the blow so long delayed, started off at once to deliver his answer in person to his faithful lieutenants. But the Florentines, though they had sent no help to Guglielmo di Pazzi, had demanded aid from Chalmont, dumbest, governor of the Milanese on behalf of Louis Twelfth, not only explaining the danger they themselves were in, but also Caesar's ambitious projects, namely that after first overcoming the small principalities and then the states of the second order, he had now it seemed reached such a height of pride that he would attack the king of France himself. The news from Naples was disquieting. Serious differences had already occurred between the Count of Armagnac and Gonzalva de Cordova, and Louis made any day need Florence, whom he had always found loyal and faithful. He therefore resolved to check Caesar's progress, and not only sent him orders to advance no further, step forwards, but also sent off, to give effect to his injunction, the captain Imbau with four hundred lances. The Duke of Valentinois on the frontier of Tuscany received a copy of the treaty signed between the Republic and the King of France, a treaty in which the king engaged to keep his ally against any enemy whatsoever, and at the same moment the formal prohibition from Louis to advance any further. Caesar also learned that beside the four hundred lances with the captain in bow, which were on the road to Florence, Louis Twelfth had as soon as he reached Asti sent off to Parma Louis de Tremoya and two hundred men-at-arms, three thousand Swiss, and a considerable train of artillery. In these two movements combined he saw hostile intentions towards himself, and turning right about face with his usual agility, he profited by the fact that he had given nothing but verbal instructions to all his lieutenants, and wrote a furious letter to Vitalazzo, reproaching him for compromising his master with a view to his own private interest, and ordering the instant surrender to the Florentines of the towns and fortresses he had taken, threatening to march down with his own troops and take them if he hesitated for a moment. As soon as this letter was written, Caesar departed for Milan, where Louis Twelfth had just arrived, bringing with him proof positive that he had been uh, calumniated in the evacuation of the conquered towns. He also was entrusted with the Pope's mission to renew for another eighteen months the title of Legate à la Terre in France to Cardinal Dumest, the friend rather than the minister of Louis Twelfth. Thus, thanks to the public proof of his innocence and the private use of his influence, Caesar soon made his peace with the King of France. But this was not all. It was in the nature of Caesar's genius to divert an impending calamity that threatened his destruction so as to come out of it better than before, and he suddenly saw the advantage he might take from the pretended disobedience of his lieutenants. Already he had been disturbed now and again by their growing power and coveted their towns. Now he thought the hour had perhaps come for suppressing them also, and in the usurpation of their private possessions, striking a blow at Florence, 
who always escaped him at the very moment when he thought to take her. It was indeed an annoying thing to have these fortresses and towns displaying another banner than his own in the midst of the beautiful Romagna, which he desired for his own kingdom. For Vitalazzo possessed Citta de Castello, Bentivoglio Bologna, Gian Paolo Baglione was in command of Perugio, Oliverato had just taken Fermo, and Pandolfo Petrucci was lord of Siena. It was high time that all these returned into his own hands. The lieutenants of the Duke of Valentinois, like Alexander's, were becoming too powerful, and Borgia must inherit from them unless he were willing to let them become his own heirs. He obtained from Louis XII three hundred lances wherewith to march against them. As soon as Vitalazzo Vitelli received Caesar's letter, he perceived that he was being sacrificed to the fear that the King of France inspired. But he was not one of those victims who suffer their throats to be cut in the expiation of a mistake. He was a buffalo of Romagna who opposed his horns to the knife of the butcher. Besides, he had the example of Arano and the Manfredi before him, and death for death he preferred to perish in arms. So Vitalazzo convoked at Magione all whose lives or lands were threatened by this new reversal of Caesar's policy. These were Paolo Orsini, Gianpaolo Baglioni, Hermes Bentivoglio, representing his father Gian, Antonio Vinafro, the envoy of Padolfo Petrucci, Oliver Toxo de Fermo, and Duke of Urbino. The first six had everything to lose, and the last had already lost everything. A treaty of alliance was signed between the Confederates. They engaged to resist whether he attacked them severally or altogether. Caesar learned the existence of this league by its first effects. The Duke of Urbino, who was adored by his subjects, had come with a handful of soldiers to the fortress of San Leone, and it had yielded at once. In less than a week, towns and fortresses followed this example, and all the duchy was once more in the hands of the Duke of Urbino. At the same time, each member of the Confederacy openly proclaimed his revolt against the common enemy, and took up a hostile attitude. Caesar was at Imola, awaiting the French troops, but with scarcely any men, so that Bentivoglio, who held part of the country, and the Duke of Urbino, who had just reconquered the rest of it, could probably have either taken him or forced him to fly and quit the Romagna, had they marched against him. All the more since the two men on whom he counted, vis-à-vis -vis Don Hugo de Cardona, who had entered his service after Capua was taken, and Migalato had mistaken his intention, and were all at once separated from him. He had really ordered them to fall back upon Remini and bring two hundred light horse and five hundred infantry of which they had the command, but, unaware of the urgency of the situation, at the very moment when they were attempting to surprise La Pergola and Fossombrone, they were surrounded by Orsino of Gravina and Vitalazzo. Ugo di Cardona and Michelato defended themselves like lions, but, in spite of their utmost efforts, the little band was cut to pieces, and Ugo di Cardona was taken prisoner, while Michelato only escaped the same fate by lying down among the dead. When night came on, he escaped to Fano. But even alone as he was, almost without troops at Imola, the Confederates dared attempt nothing against Caesar, whether because of the personal fear he inspired, or because in him they respected the ally of the King of France. They contented themselves with taking the towns and fortresses in the neighborhood. Vitalazzo had retaken the fortresses of Fasombrone, Urbino, Cagli, and Agabio. Orsino of Gravina had reconquered Fano and the whole province, while Gian Maria de Varano, the same who by his absence had escaped being massacred with the rest of his family, had re-entered Camarino, born in triumph by his people. Not even all this could destroy Caesar's confidence in his own good fortune, and while he was on the one hand urging on the arrival of the French troops, and calling into his pay all those gentlemen known as broken lances, because they went about the country in parties of five or six only, and attached themselves to anyone who wanted them, 
he had opened up negotiations with his enemies, certain that from that very day when he should persuade them to a conference they were undone. Indeed, Caesar had the power of persuasion as a gift from heaven, and though they perfectly well knew his duplicity, they had no power of resisting, not so much his actual eloquence as that air of frank good nature which Machiavelli so greatly admired, and which indeed more than once deceived even him, wily politician as he was. In order to get Paolo Orsini to treat with him at Imola, Caesar sent Cardinal Borgia to the Confederates as a hostage, and on this Paolo Orsini hesitated no longer, and on the 25th of October, 1502, arrived at Imola. Caesar received him as an old friend from whom one might have been estranged a few days, because of some slight passing differences. He frankly avowed that all the fault was no doubt on his side, since he had contrived to alienate men who were such loyal lords and also such brave captains. But with men of their nature, he added, an honest, honorable explanation, such as he would give, must put everything once more in status quo. To prove that it was goodwill, not fear, that brought him back to them, he showed Orsino the letters from Cardinal Amboise which announced the speedy arrival of French troops. He showed him those he had collected about him, in the wish he declared that they might be thoroughly convinced that what he chiefly regretted in the whole matter was not so much the loss of the distinguished captains, who were the very soul of his vast enterprise, as that he had led the world to believe, in a way so fatal to his own interest, that he could for a single instant fail to recognize their merit, adding that he consequently relied upon him, Paolo Orsini, whom he had always cared for most, to bring back the Confederates by a peace which would be as much for the profit of all as a war was hurtful to all, and that he was ready to sign a treaty in consonance with their wishes so long as it should not prejudice his own honor. Orsino was the man Caesar wanted. Full of pride and confidence in himself, he was convinced of the truth of the old proverb that says, A pope cannot reign eight days if he has hath the Colonnas and the Orsini against him. He believed, therefore, if not in Caesar's good faith, at any rate in the necessity he must feel for making peace. Accordingly, he signed with him the following conventions, which only needed ratification, on the 18th of October, 1502, which we reproduce here as Machiavelli sent them to the magnificent Republic of Florence. Agreement between the Duke of Valentinois and the Confederates. Let it be known to the parties mentioned below, and to all who shall see these presents, that His Excellency the Duke of Romagna, of the one part and the Orsini of the other part, together with their confederates desiring to put an end to differences, enmities, misunderstandings, and suspicions which have arisen between them, have resolved as follows. There shall be between them peace and alliance true and perpetual, with a complete obliteration of wrongs and injuries which may have taken place up to this day, both parties engaging to preserve no resentment of the same, and in conformity with the aforesaid peace and union, His Excellency the Duke of Romagna shall receive into perpetual confederation, league, and alliance all the lords aforesaid, and each of them shall promise to defend the estates of all in general and of each in particular against any power that may annoy or attack them for any cause whatsoever, excepting always nevertheless the Pope Alexander the Sixth and His Very Christian Majesty Louis the Twelfth, King of France the lords above named promising on the other part to unite in the defense of the person and estates of his excellency as also those of the most illustrious lords don gafredo bargia prince of squalace don roderigo bargia duke of sermonetta and bizelli and don gian borgia duke of camarino and neji all brothers or nephews of the duke of romagna 
Moreover, since the rebellion and usurpation of Urbino have occurred during the above-mentioned misunderstandings, all the confederates aforesaid, and each of them shall bind themselves to unite all their forces for the recovery of the estates aforesaid, and of such other places as have revolted and been usurped. His Excellency the Duke of Romagna shall undertake to continue to the Orsini and Vitelli their ancient engagements in the way of military service, and on the same conditions. His Excellency promises further not to insist on the service in person of more than one of them, as they may choose, the service that the others may render shall be voluntary. He also promises that the second treaty shall be ratified by the sovereign pontiff, who shall not compel Cardinal Orsino to reside in Rome longer than shall seem convenient to this prelate. Furthermore, since there are certain differences between the Pope and the Lord Gian Bentifoglio, the Confederates aforesaid agree that they shall be put to the arbitration of Cardinal Orsino, of His Excellency the Duke of Romagna, and of the Lord Pandolfo Petrucci, without appeal. Thus the Confederates engage, each and all, so soon as they may be required by the Duke of Romagna, to put into the hands as a hostage one of the legitimate sons of each of them, in that place and at that time which he may be pleased to indicate the same confederates promising, moreover, all and each, that if any project directed against any one of them come to their knowledge to give warning thereof, and all to prevent such project reciprocally. It is agreed over and above between the Duke of Romagna and the confederates aforesaid to regard as a common enemy any who shall fail to keep the present stipulations and to unite in the destruction of any states not conforming thereto. Signed, Caesar Paolo Orsino, Agapit Secretary. At the same time, while Orsino was carrying to the Confederates the treaty drawn up between him and the Duke, Bentivoglio, not willing to submit to the arbitration indicated, made an offer to Caesar of settling their differences by a private treaty, and sent his son to arrange the conditions. After some parleying, they were settled as follows. Bentivoglio should separate his fortunes from the Vitali and Orsini. He should furnish the Duke of Valentinois with a hundred men-at-arms and a hundred mounted archers for eight years. He should pay 12,000 ducats per annum to Caesar for the support of a hundred lances. In return for this, his son Hannibal was to marry the sister of the Archbishop of Enna, who was Caesar's niece, and the Pope was to recognize his sovereignty in Bologna. The King of France, the Duke of Ferrara, and the Republic of Florence were to be the guarantors of this treaty. But the convention brought to the Confederates by Orsino was the cause of great difficulties on their part. Pitalazzo Vitelli, in particular, who knew Caesar the best, never ceased to tell the other condottieri that so prompt and easy a peace must needs be the cover of some trap. But since Caesar had meanwhile collected a considerable army at Damala, and the four hundred lances lent him by Louis the Twelfth had arrived at last, Vitalazzo and Liverato decided to sign the treaty that Orsino brought, and to let the Duke of Urbino and the Lord of Camerino know of it. They, seeing plainly that it was henceforth impossible to make a defense unaided, had retired the one to Cita de Castello, and the other into the kingdom of Naples. But Caesar, saying nothing of his intentions, started on the 10th of December, and made his way to Cesena with a powerful army, once more under his command. Fear began to spread on all sides, not only in Romagna, but in the whole of northern Italy. Florence, seeing him move away from her, only thought it a blind to conceal his intentions, while Venice, seeing him approach her frontiers, dispatched all her troops to the banks of the Po. Caesar perceived their fear, and lest harm should be done to himself by the mistrust it might inspire, he sent away all French troops in his service as soon as he reached Cesena, except a hundred men with Monsieur de Candal, his brother-in-law. It was then seen that he ha only had two thousand cavalry and two thousand infantry with him. Several days were spent in parleying, for at Cesena Caesar found the envoys of the Vitelli and Orsini, who themselves were with their army in the Duchy of Urbino. 
but after the preliminary discussions as to the right course to follow in carrying on the plan of conquest, there arose such difficulties between the general-in-chief and these agents that they could not but see the impossibility of getting anything settled by intermediaries, and the urgent necessity of a conference between Caesar and one of the chiefs. So, Leverato ran the risk of joining the duke in order to make proposals to him, either to march on Tuscany or to take a synagoglia, which was the only place in the Duchy of Urbino that had not again fallen into Caesar's power. Caesar's reply was that he did not desire to war upon Tuscany, because the Tuscans were his friends, but that he approved of the lieutenant's plan with regard to Sinigaglia, and therefore was marching towards Fano. But the daughters of Frederic, the former Duke of Urbino, who held the town of Sinigaglia, and who was called the Lady Perfect, because she had married Gian Delta Rovere, whom his uncle, Sixtus IV, had made Prefect of Rome, judging that it would be impossible to defend herself against the forces of the Duke of Valentinois, was bringing left the citadel in the hands of a captain, recommending him to get the best terms he could for the town, and took boat for Venice. Caesar learned this news at Rimini, through a messenger from Vitelli and the Orsini, who said that the governor of the citadel, though refusing to yield to them, was quite ready to make terms with him, and consequently they would engage to go to the town and finish the business there. Caesar's reply was that, in consequence of this information, he was sending some of his troops to Cecina and Imola, for they would be useless to him, as he should now have theirs, which, together with the escort he retained, would be sufficient, since his only object was the complete pacification of the Duchy of Urbino. He added that this pacification would not be possible if his old friends continued to distrust him, and to discuss through intermediaries alone plans in which their own fortunes were interested as well as his. The messenger returned with this answer, and the Confederates, though feeling, it is true, the justice of Caesar's remarks, nonetheless hesitated to comply with his demand. Fidelazzo Vitelli, in particular, showed a want of confidence in him which nothing seemed able to subdue, but pressed by Oliverato, Gravina, and Orsino, he consented at last to await the Duke's coming, making concession rather because he could not bear to appear more timid than his companions, than because of any confidence he felt in the return of friendship that Borgia was displaying. The duke learned the news of this decision so much desired when he arrived at Fano on the 20th of December, 1502. At once he summoned eight of his most faithful friends, among whom were Dana, his nephew, Michelato, and Ugo de Cardona, and ordered them, as soon as they arrived at Sinigaglia, and had seen Vitalazzo, Gravina, Oliverato, and Orsino come out to meet them, on a pretext of doing them honor, to place themselves on the right and left hand of the four generals, two beside each, so that at a given signal they might either stab or arrest them. Next, he assigned to each of them his particular man, bidding them not quit his side until he had re-entered Sinigaglia and arrived at the quarters prepared for him. Then he sent orders to such of the soldiers as were in cantonments in the neighborhood to assemble to the number of eight thousand on the banks of the Metaurus, a little river of Umbria, which runs into the Adriatic, and has been made famous by the defeat of Hannibal. The duke arrived at the rendezvous given to his army on the 31st of December, and instantly set out in front two hundred horse, and immediately behind them his infantry, following close in the midst of his men-at-arms, following the coast of the Adriatic, with the mountains to his right and the sea on his left, which in part of the way left only space for the army to march ten abreast. After four hours' march, the duke, at a turn of the path, perceived Sinigaglia, nearly a mile distant from the sea, and a bowshot from the mountains. Between the army and the town ran a little river, whose banks he had to follow for some distance. At last he found a bridge opposite a suburb of the town, and here Caesar ordered his cavalry to stop. It was drawn up in two lines, one between the road and the river, the other on the side of the country, leaving the whole width of the road to the infantry, which latter defiled across the bridge, and entering the town drew themselves up in a battle array in the great square. On their side, Vitalazzo, Gravino, Orsino, and Oliverato, 
to make room for the duke's army, had quartered their soldiers in little towns or villages in the neighborhood of Sinigaglia. Oliverato alone had kept nearly 1,000 infantry and 150 horse, who were in barricades in the suburb through which the duke entered. Caesar had made only a few steps toward the town when he perceived Vitalazzo at the gate, with the duke of Gravina and Orsino, who all came out to meet him. The last two quite gay and confident, but the first so gloomy and dejected that you would have thought he foresaw the fate that was in store for him, and doubtless he had not been without some presentiments, for when he left his army to come to Sinagaglia, he had bidden them farewell as though never to meet again, and had commended the care of his family to the captains, and embraced his children with tears, a weakness which appeared strange to all who knew him as a brave condottieri. The duke marched up to them holding out his hand as a sign that all was over and forgotten, and did it with an air at once so loyal and so smiling that Gravina and Orsino could no longer doubt the genuine return of his friendship, and it was only Vitalazzo still appeared sad. At the same moment, exactly as they had been commanded, the duke's accomplices took their posts on the right and left of those they were to watch, who were all there except the Liberato, whom the duke could not see and began to seek with uneasy looks, but as he crossed the suburb he perceived him exercising his troops on the square. Caesar at once dispatched Michelato and Dana with a message that it was as rash thing to have his troops out, when they might easily start some quarrel with the duke's men and bring about an affray. It would be much better to settle them in barracks and then come to join his companions who were with Caesar. Oliverato, drawn by the same fate as his friends, made no objection, ordered his soldiers to indoors, and put his horse to the gallop to join the duke, escorted on either side by Adena and Michelato. Caesar, on seeing him, called him, took him by the hand, and continued his march to the palace that had been prepared for him, his four victims following after. Arrived on the threshold, Caesar dismounted, and signing to the leader of the men-at-arms to await his orders, he went in first, followed by Oliverato, Gravina, Vitalazzo, Vitelli, and Orsino, each accompanied by his two satellites. But scarcely had they gone upstairs and into the first room when the door was shut behind them, and Caesar turned round, saying, The hour has come! This was the signal agreed upon. Instantly the former confederates were seized, thrown down, and forced to surrender with a dagger at their throat. Then, while they were being carried to a dungeon, Caesar opened the window, went out on the balcony, and cried out to the leader of his men-at-arms, "'Go forward!' The man was in the secret. He rushed on with his band towards the barracks where Liberato's soldiers had just been consigned, and they, suddenly surprised and off their guard, were at once made prisoners. Then the duke's troops began to pillage the town, and he summoned Machiavelli. Caesar and the Florentine envoy were nearly two hours shut up together, and since Machiavelli himself recounts the history of this interview, we will give his own words. "'He summoned me,' says the Florentine ambassador, "'and in the calmest manner showed me his joy at the success of this enterprise, which he assured me he had spoken of to me the evening before. I remember that he did, but I did not at that time understand what he meant. Next he explained, in terms of much feeling and lively affection for our city, the different motives which had made him desire your alliance, a desire to which he hopes you will respond. He ended with charging me to lay three proposals before your lordships. First, that you rejoice with him in the destruction, at a single blow, of the mortal enemies of the king, himself, and you, and the consequent disappearance of all seeds of trouble and dissensions likely to waste Italy. This service of his, together with his refusal to allow the prisoners to march against you, ought, he thinks, to excite your gratitude towards him. Secondly, he begs that you will at this juncture give him a striking proof of your friendliness by urging your cavalry's advance towards Borgio, and there assembling some infantry also, in order that they may march with him, should need arise on Castello or on Perugia. 
Lastly, he desires, and this is his third condition, that you arrest the Duke of Urbino, if he should flee from Castello into your territories, when he learns that Vitellazzo is a prisoner. When I objected that to give him up would not beseem the dignity of the Republic, and that you would never consent, he approved of my words, and said that it would be enough for you to keep the Duke, and not give him his liberty without his Excellency's permission. I have promised to give you all this information, to which he awaits your reply. The same night eight masked men descended to the dungeons where the prisoners lay. They believed at that moment that the fatal hour had arrived for all, but this time the executioners had to do with Vitellazzo and Oliverato alone. With these two captains heard that they were condemned, Oliverato burst forth into reproaches against Vitellazzo, saying that it was all his fault that they had taken up arms against the duke. Not a word Vitellazzo answered except a prayer that the pope might grant him plenary indulgence for all his sins. Then the masked men took them away, leaving Orsino and Gravina to await a similar fate, and led away the two chosen out to die to a secluded spot outside the ramparts of the town, where they were strangled and buried at once into two trenches that had been dug beforehand. The two others were kept alive until it should be known if the Pope had arrested Cardinal Orsino, Archbishop of Florence, and Lord of Santa Croce, and when the answer was received in the affirmative from His Holiness, Gravina and Orsino had been transferred to a castle, were likewise strangled. The duke, leaving instructions with Michelato, set off for Sinigaglia as soon as the first execution was over, assuring Machiavelli that he had never had any other thought than that of giving tranquillity to the Romagna and to Tuscany, and also that he thought he had succeeded by taking and putting to death the men who had been the cause of all the trouble, also that any other revolt that might take place in the future would be nothing but sparks that a drop of water could extinguish. The Pope had barely learned that Caesar had his enemies in his power when, eager to play the same winning game himself, he announced to Cardinal Orsino, though it was then midnight, that his son had taken Sinigaglia and gave him an invitation to come the next morning and talk over the good news. The Cardinal, delighted at this increase of favor, did not miss his appointment. So, in the morning, he started on horseback for the Vatican, but at a turn of the first street he met the governor of Rome with a detachment of cavalry, who congratulated himself on the happy chance that they were taking the same road, and accompanied him to the threshold of the Vatican. There the cardinal dismounted and began to ascend the stairs. Scarcely, however, had he reached the first landing before his mules and carriages were seized and shut in the palace stables. When he entered the hall of the parapente, he found that he and all his suite were surrounded by armed men, who led him into another apartment called the Vicar's Hall, where he found the Abate Alviano, the Protonotary Orsino, Jacopo Santa Croce, and Rinaldo Orsino, who were all prisoners like himself. At the same time, the governor received orders to seize the castle of Monte Giardino, which belonged to the Orsini, and take away all the jewels, all the hangings, all the furniture, and all the silver that he might find. The governor carried out his orders conscientiously, and brought to the Vatican everything he seized down to the cardinal's account book. On consulting this book, the Pope found out two things. First, that a sum of two thousand ducats was due to the cardinal, no debtor's name being mentioned. Secondly, that the cardinal had bought three months before, for fifteen hundred Roman crowns, a magnificent pearl which could not be found among the objects belonging to him, on which Alexander ordered that from that very moment until the negligence in the cardinal's accounts was repaired, the men who were in the habit of bringing him food twice a day on behalf of his mother should not be admitted into the castle St. Angelo. The same day the cardinal's mother sent the pope the two thousand ducats, and the next day his mistress in man's attire came in person to bring the missing pearl. His holiness, however, was so struck with her beauty in this costume that we are told he let her keep the pearl for the same price she had paid for it. 
Then the Pope allowed the cardinal to have his food brought as before, and he died of poison on the 22nd of February, that is, two days after his accounts had been set right. That same night the Prince of Squalace set off to take possession in the Pope's name of the lands of the deceased. End of chapter 13, recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.